0: Welcome to From Betrayal to Breakthrough. I'm Dr. Debbie Silber, and today's guest is Denise Bassart. Denise is an award-winning poet, writer, photographer, and artist. She's a certified meditation facilitator and contemplative arts teacher. She's an information IT professional working for a large urban school district. Denise holds a BA in chemistry, an MS in computer science, and a PhD in developmental neuroscience. And she's a survivor of childhood sexual abuse. Denise spent her adulthood healing herself from the traumatic impact the sexual abuse had on her life. She's not a mental health professional. She's a thriver who has traveled a healing journey and is able to share a personal guided experience for readers to find and engage in their own journey to healing to becoming thrivers. As an unpublished manuscript, Thriving After Sexual Abuse was a quarterfinalist in In the 2019 Book Life Prize Nonfiction Contest Self-Help Category. And is it possible to not just survive, but thrive after sexual abuse? Yes, it is. And my next guest, Denise, will share exactly how she did it. If you've experienced this specific type of trauma or know someone who has, get ready to learn how to completely rewire your mind, release the trauma from your body, and so much more. Here's Denise. Okay, everybody. So we have Denise Bossart here today and she's going to be talking about thriving, not just surviving, but thriving after sexual abuse. Of course, we're gonna, you know, we're always interested in the, uh, yes, there's the trauma, but we wanna know all about the transformation. We're gonna be hearing all about it. So welcome, Denise. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, absolutely. So this is a you know it's a touchy topic and it's one of those things that that in interviewing so many people who've gone through it, it's um, it seems like the kind of thing where it can easily just take you down a, a very disempowering path because you start believing, all these th- thoughts and, and things that maybe were said to you that are just not true. And we, we make things to mean things. And it could really uh, be very disempowering. So let's, uh, w- can we start with your story? And I want to know where you were at, and then we'll find out what you, what you did to change.
1: Sure. So I was sexually abused as a child by my grandfather. And it would happen when we would go and spend summers there. They had a sort of modern log cabin on a lake. And there was fishing and boating and skiing and swimming and all kinds of fun activities, but there was also the abuse. And it went on for quite a while. I don't know exactly when it started. Um, I know I was pretty young in elementary school and it lasted until he died when I was a freshman in high school. And I just knew I was terrified of this man. I, I was too young to really put it together and understand what was happening. I actually did a lot of dissociation during the abuse itself. And all I knew was that I couldn't tell anybody because I knew this big, tall military man would not accept that and there'd be hell to pay. Oh, sorry. Um, (laughs) But uh, that it was something I couldn't share with anyone. And there was such a shame and hurt and confusion. And like you said, listening to those those messages that I internalized and almost made part of my DNA because I was so young, and having to, to face him at family gatherings and not even wanting to be near him or sit next to him at the dinner table. And it just transformed the way I understood the world. I was, as I, began, I was very young and my way of interacting with the world, understanding the world was being formed. And this taught me that it wasn't safe. The world was not a safe place. People who loved you could hurt you. Mm-hmm. and that's kind of something you internalized when you have those messages repeated to yourself.
0: Did, you, did you, if you, if you can remember back, like were you thinking this is something that just doesn't seem right and I should tell my parents, or it just, what, what was what was the thought process?
1: Yeah, it, it's hard to say exactly what I was thinking at the time, but the, it was more about the feeling. I was so afraid and so ashamed. I didn't want anybody to know. Now, obviously I wanted it to stop, but as a child, you're totally dependent on these adults and you can't go against them. So as what often happens with children is we internalize that. We blame ourselves. Yeah. And I taught myself that message that I was to blame. And so in some ways I convinced myself, no one would want to help me, that yeah. I deserved what was happening to me. And so I didn't share that with anyone. I was just too ashamed about it. Yeah. And and to
0: disassociate is is a such a common response as a child because you can't escape So Mm -hmm. at least if you mentally remove yourself, emotionally remove yourself, it's like the way of the way of coping. And at the time, that was the best option available to you. Mm -hmm. So then, you know, you you made it to mean all of these things about you and which, of course, aren't true. And then how did it show itself as you as you got a little bit older? Like just, you know, walk us through.
1: So it actually showed up pretty early. As soon as the abuse started happening, my parents noticed a personality change. I had a cousin who was also abused. She saw what was happening and how my personality shifted. And she knew grandpa had gotten to me too, but she was just a teenager. She didn't have the the work done that she could stand up for me. She was still scared and under his influence. And my parents, this was many, many years ago. And so my parents they didn't know what to do. Back then, there wasn't a focus on child psychology. We didn't understand incest and abuse. We didn't understand the signs of it. It's all under the cover kind of thing, so they did what they thought was best. They took me to their marriage counselor, mm-hmm. and obviously, that didn't go well. I didn't respond well to that. I really felt that I was being uh, looked at as something was wrong with me, and it needed to be fixed in order for everyone to be happy and get on with their lives, and and they gave me an adult analysis, which is, crazy to think about now, but it was like repeating questions to try to catch you.
0: Mm. Catch you when things <laughs> and, are going-
1: it must it have been so scary, um, even just to, to tell your parents, right? Was that, do you remember telling well, them? I didn't say anything to them about the abuse. So okay. they just noticed that there was something happening. They were concerned. They didn't understand this loving, caring, I wasn't gregarious or very outgoing, but I wanted to be around people, hug people and that sort of thing. And I shifted to this complete introvert that wanted to just hide in my room and play with my toys. And they obviously saw something that had shifted, but they had no idea what it was. And I wasn't telling them what it was. So they were hoping that getting me in front of a psychologist would be able to learn what was going on. But I just, I got mad when they took me. I got mad when they gave me this test, when it was obvious they were asking questions that we're trying to discover there's something wrong with me. And I just refused to, to talk to the psychologist at all. And so there was a mess, right? My parents made the effort. They didn't know what was happening. The psychologist wasn't trained. I refused to participate. So here was an opportunity very early that we could have stopped the abuse. And then all of these things together made it so it didn't stop. It just kept going.
0: Mm. So it just kept going. And now here you are feeling, you know, it's just now it's the, the years are, are adding up of this and you're you're probably just feeling kind of helpless, like, what do I, how do I get out of this? So was it that the only way out of it was his death? I mean, that's when, that's when you felt free, and then what happened after that? Was there a sense of of freedom, or peace, or something, or?
1: This sense of freedom came, I think, just in, in that my mind, it had been protecting me, that had led to the dissociation, that had kept me from remembering things, and sort of Boxed all those in the dark corner. I guess my mind decided, oh, he's gone. It's safe. Boom. You know, all of the memories came out, all of the uh, flashbacks happening, body memories. And with that came, of course, a real overwhelming sense of shame and confusion. I thought I was going a little crazy because it, you know, trying to figure out what was happening. And I just decided, "Mm, I can't deal with this. I didn't tell anybody. I just immersed myself in school. Mm -hmm. And I was busy in scholastics and band and basketball. I got a lot of positive feedback and affirmation from doing these activities and succeeding in them. And I just basically (laughs) pushed it all aside and wasn't even trying to deal with it. But imagine you're a teenager. You're blossoming physically. You want to start having relationships and have some level of intimacy. And I just had such body shame Mm -hmm. and such hatred of my body. I just... It was like, okay, treating it like a machine, it's there to serve me, but I don't want to have anything to do with it. I'm not going to connect with it in any way other than to kind of carry my brain around Mm -hmm. (laughs) and do what I need to do. So when he first died, the the only freedom I have was to remember all the horrible stuff more clearly and more fully and then have to compartmentalize in order to move forward.
0: Okay, so you compartmentalized all of it, and you did that for a while. But you know, we know it doesn't go away unless we deal with it. <laughs> so it must have been following you around, uh, you, you know. And how did you? How did you? How long did you keep it at bay? Did you compartmentalize it and just get involved with other? Yeah. Things?
1: So eventually, I, um, it, it followed me into college. Same behavior patterns, and then I met a graduate student. I started dating him, and he was actually a recovering alcoholic who was going through um, AA meetings and and he really appreciated the help he was getting there. So he encouraged me to reach out to the local counseling center at the university. Took me a couple of tries to find the right therapist, but I found a counselor who was the first time I could really start talking about my abuse and my experience. And I was very fortunate there was a women's group that was associated with the counseling center for women of assault and abuse. And she got me into that program. It was a therapist facilitated group, and that was the first time I really talked to women who had gone through what I've gone through, and to see them, to hear my story in their story, to see myself in their experience, and to see these women who were further along, who had been doing their work and making improvements in their lives, and to be inspired by what they were doing, and because he had gone through AA, we we researched and found a similar 12-step program called Survivors of Incest Anonymous,
0: mm-hmm. and
1: that was the first time I actually met men who were survivors. So there's actually a, a gentleman who was the age of my grandfather when he was abusing me. He was in the program attending the meetings, and his mother had abused him. So it was this complete reversal from the image I had of my grandfather and older men to realizing that they were people who, who were suffering on the same level I was.
0: Right. And on some level, it must have been so reassuring to know that you're not alone and, you know, and you're not crazy. And here are people that experienced something very similar and that they're doing the work to heal. So that must have been really reassuring. And then what did you, how did you notice? Did you notice Some some type of healing, whether it was physical, mental, and emotional. Like, what what was it? Was it the women's group that you were in? Was it just meeting people? What was it that you that you experienced where you
1: noticed a shift in how you felt? Sure, I think it was the combination of those two groups that the uh, survivors of incest anonymous. They're all ages, all experiences, men and women, and that really expanded my understanding to say, well, look at all these different types of people and It wasn't just me. It wasn't something I had done, and they were messaging that. They were sharing that experience, you know, it's not anything that you've done, it's not your fault. So I started hearing a different message than what I had heard as a kid by people who I could respect and trust because they had gone through similar things. And for them to talk about, you know, I'm challenged when this comes up, I'm triggered when this comes up, and this shared experience about what had happened what was the response to certain situations and how to deal with that was really inspiring and helpful to start reprogramming my own self-identity and how I presented in the world, how I wanted to live my life. And it was the first steps into moving into something other than just being a victim. I think think that's when I started transitioning to survivor.
0: Mm -hmm. Okay. So went from victim, right, to survivor. And then, uh, so you're hearing all these, uh, all of these other stories, you're realizing, that, um, you know, they have similar stories, and you see what other people are doing. And it, it did it did it help you um, just change your belief system around, uh, around you? Did it did it allow you to feel more comfortable when you were speaking
1: to other people? Like what what did it lead to? I think what it did is it allowed me for the first time to feel comfortable sharing my story. Mm-hmm. And these were, of course, complete strangers at the beginning. And so to feel comfortable sharing my story and know that I wasn't going to be rejected. That's a huge thing. You're so filled with shame mm-hmm. that you just anticipate and expect rejection. That's one of the fears that survivors have that we don't want to tell our stories. And unfortunately, a lot of survivors, when they do, they are rejected or, mm-hmm. you know, invalidated about their experience. And so I lived in that fear for a long time and, They were able to help me see that I can share my story and be validated. And they gave me a container to start exploring. I don't think that, you know, I, like I said, I made a shift from victim to survivor, but it was just the first kind of baby step for me. Mm -hmm. You know, I got to explore what it would be like not to be a victim, to start to see that there's something possible beyond the way I was living based on what these folks were, were showing me and talking about. But that was just the first step for me. And after those experiences, what I needed was more for me personally. So I started exploring um, other things that I felt could be helpful. Some of them I stumbled into, some of them I purposely researched, but I started doing yoga, which was unbelievably transformative for my body and my relationship with my body. It helped release all that stored memory, stored emotion. Uh, I really started actively writing, doing a lot of poetry to sort of, work through the abuse and my healing process. And that was really important for me to learn, to trust my body, to connect with it and to love it and to say, okay, Hey, you need some self care. You need some appreciation and you're not the enemy. I had made my body the enemy because that gave me some control of the situation. I couldn't make my grandfather as a child do that. But as an adult, I could say, my body is not going to be my enemy. It's going to be a part of what I want to nurture and be a part of my life integrated with the rest of me. And that was really important. And then I learned about meditation, started doing Mm -hmm. meditation, which really helped me process more of the mental stuff around the abuse and healing, because it helped me realize I had a couple of voices in my head. I had my grandfather's voice of the shame, the blame, you deserve this, you're unlovable, you're unworthy. So that was the soundtrack going. And then to counteract that when I was in school, I had become this perfectionist. Again, it was about control and I control every aspect of my life by being absolutely perfect to counteract the message that I was worthless and full of shame. Well, we all know perfectionism is a lost cause because you'll never get there. And so now I had another voice in my head that I created that was beating me up. Anytime I didn't get the straight A's, the perfect 100%, was a star and everything that I tried. And those voices were just there the whole time in some way. And with meditation, I started to recognize that those are just voices I could release, that I could let go, get quiet, find some peace, find some stillness, and start to really connect with my authentic self again.
0: Mm, beautiful. And and you know, it is so important. I, I love uh the different things you did because it it needs to be released in so many ways, physically, mentally, emotionally, psychologically, spiritually. And yoga is a beautiful way, a somatic practice, body-based practice, to just get the issues out of the tissues. It is locked in there, and it's released. Was there a certain type of yoga that
1: really resonated with you? Yeah, I was really drawn to Iyengar yoga, which is a positional-based yoga. It's very gentle. You use a lot of props to help support you. If you can't get into the full pose, you can do props to help whatever your range of motion is, your flexibility, it adjusts to that. Now, I did have a little challenge when I began because there were some poses that were pretty threatening to me. I felt very vulnerable because of how they were, your position, your body, Mm -hmm. and I also Mm -hmm. had a male teacher who taught the introductory courses, and in this style of yoga, the teacher will gently adjust the student physically to get them in the right pose, and that was pretty intimidating to me, but I had a conversation with the teacher, and based on the statistics, we know it's not unusual to find out that his sister was abused and so he understood and we worked out here's alternative poses I won't do adjustments we won't make it a big deal you won't stand out in class and given that trusting space I was able to work through enough to the point he could adjust me that I could do the poses that scared me and so it was an evolution that I even got to see in myself or I learned to trust my body and feel safe and and how beautiful that you shared uh, because
0: you could have just kept that to yourself and and then again now it's compounded and you're not giving yourself the benefit of the full healing that could have happened within that class and you trusted you shared and then he worked with you and you know i mean then your healing is kind of evident because what what uh was such a trigger earlier mm-hmm. then became you know, it, it lost its emotional charge. So there's the work right there. What about now with meditation? Was there a certain type of meditation that you did or like a guided yeah.
1: meditation or? So it, it was um breath-based meditation, compassion meditation. I started off following some guided meditation tapes that I had of Pitna Han and others that were helpful, but I eventually found a meditation center because I wanted the in-person meditation Mm -hmm. to really get connected if I had questions. It was a community of practitioners, and so I had a group of people going through this together. Now, back then, both for yoga and meditation, there wasn't trauma-informed practices. Now it's fantastic, we have trauma-informed, sensitive yoga, and the same for meditation. But I had done so much work for years in yoga. By the time I came to meditation, I had processed enough that I was able to step into meditation without being overwhelmed. But it really was you know, having a focus on your breath to help keep you present. We did a lot of different um, practices that involved compassion for yourself and others, which was huge because as a survivor, you've got to learn how to love yourself and that's not an easy thing to do for sure. <laughs> So it was a lot of different things. It wasn't only working with my mind, but it was working with how I saw myself, how I saw myself in relation to other people. And it was uh, you know, something that I could do on my own and I could also do with a group, which was very supportive.
0: Now let's talk about the writing that just seems like such a wonderful trifecta you know you have the the yoga and the meditation and the writing is the way to to just express get it out was there was did you were you feeling a sense of release and relief as you were writing did you notice things you were writing that was sort of buried in the subconscious and you were giving it you were giving it a chance to be expressed what what happened with the writing
1: Yes, yeah, so I began this type of writing when I started yoga and, and just felt the need to express. It was just so overwhelming that I really needed to write. And I actually would walk the beaches. We lived in Florida. I walked the beaches in the morning and I'd write about the nature and, and the songs of the birds and the wind and all this kind of nice stuff because it was a really great place, kind of meditative space. And then at night, when it was dark, ironically, I would, I would write about the abuse. And like you said, things came out. You know, things that a lot of it was just expressing the emotion, the fear, the anger, all of that, and relaying some of the imagery and just how I felt about my experience, how I felt about my grandfather and getting that out on paper. And then also writing about things as they shifted, how I transitioned from being that space of fear and shame and progressing through the different stages. And so at the time, my husband was like, oh, you should share this. This would be great. This would be very helpful. I'm like, who's gonna publish a book of poems about abuse? You know, I'd love to do it, but I don't think so. And I kind of kept it in the back of my head for a very long time. And then I wanted to try to share out in some way, but as a trauma survivor, I don't have access to a lot of my memories because of the way my brain developed and how I was protecting myself. The ones I have are very graphic and clear, (laughs) but I can't put those memories in the timeline of my normal life, what happened outside of the abuse, what was going on in my life. So a memoir is just not something accessible to me. Mm-hmm. Finally, when I learned about Dr. Larry Nessar and his abuse of gymnasts, all these women that he impacted, it just broke my heart. And it dawned on me, you've done all these different things, the heel. You could write about your story, but you could make more of a self-help book to describe all the things that you've done and help people work through that for themselves to figure out what they might do. And that's what I ended up doing with my book, Thriving After Sexual Abuse. It's a way to help other survivors figure out how to create a healing journey based on my experiences and what I've tried. I ask them to journal, answer some questions to do their own self-discovery. And I kind of walk them through different things and different questions they need to answer about who they should share it with and if they how to share with your partner. If they need to explore who knew when and what they knew, they can do that but it, it's a container to inspire healing and other survivors. And like a little blueprint of how you could go through it. So if you're just starting, I give you an information on how to find a therapist. If you're further along, I give you some of the practices like yoga meditation. I do contemplative arts, which is really a healing experience. All the things I'm trying, and just hope that it's a book that could be useful to survivors, but mental health professionals, friends and family of survivors, It's not for any particular age group, it's for men and women, but it's hopeful that by getting it out there and sharing it, people will realize, wow, there's a way to move through this and to actually see the light at the end of the tunnel and figure out steps for myself that I can do to begin my own healing journey. And
0: it sounds like you're kind of holding their hand throughout the process. And and I know when it comes to our traumas, uh, there my all my dogs, everybody, we're doing this very real. (laughs) Uh, you know, it's important to know we're not crazy, we're not alone, and we can heal from, from all of it. So what do you want to make sure everyone knows as we wrap up?
1: I want everyone to just think about how strong they really are. If you've gone through a traumatic experience, to get through that experience, how strong you've had to been, and to trust yourself, to know that you have the strength to explore ways to heal yourself, and that you can give this healing to yourself as a gift. It may take a lot of hard work. It may take some time, but it's something everyone can give to themselves and really see a transformation from a survivor to a thriver. Beautiful. And believe it or not, the reason why I, I, I have all these dogs is because of the burst
0: of oxytocin, which is the hug hormone, right? The, uh, the, that chemical that just makes us feel so close and so wonderful. And dogs are such a beautiful way to, um, to just, you know, help us express that and and give that love. And of course, it's unconditional with a pet, although right now, <laughs> it's annoying. Anyway, uh, Denise, where do we go to learn more about you and the great work you do?
1: Sure. I've got a website, thrivingaftersexualabusebook.com. And then I'm on Twitter, Am Thriving after and on Facebook, Thriving After Sexual Abuse. Uh, I want to thank you so
0: much for your time, for your wisdom, for your attention. I know our members Uh, And our listeners and our viewers got so much out of this today. Thank you. Thank you so much. The body is so brilliant. Denise disassociated herself from the trauma because that was the only way she can remove herself from it. Then, when it was safe to begin her healing, everything that was compartmentalized had an opportunity to be looked at and then healed. Stay in touch with Denise by going to Thriving After Sexual Abuse Book.com, and we'll have all of her information in the show notes at the PBTinstitute.com forward slash podcast. Here's my biggest takeaway. Healing requires a multi-pronged approach and for Denise it was one joining the women's group and survivors of incest anonymous these groups helped her realize she's not alone and could learn being safe and feeling safe in a community two yoga to release the trauma doing it at her own pace and on her own at her own comfort level three writing, expressing herself through a creative outlet. Four, meditation, to find compassion for herself and to reduce her need for perfectionism, which she was doing to counteract shame. Everyone can find their own healing recipe and this sounds like a really good one, especially the idea of community, which is crucial to your healing as you learn that you're not alone. And speaking of community, that's what's waiting for you within the PBT Institute where we have everything you can ever need to become your physical, mental, and emotional best. We have daily classes and certified coaches and practitioners you can schedule time with. We have the most interesting topics. We bring in experts to teach masterclasses in areas of health and mindset and spirituality and personal development. We have the most friendly, welcoming, and supportive place to become your best, and it's all online. There is nothing like this that exists, and I am so excited to welcome you. Just go to the pbtinstitute.com forward slash join to learn more. Thanks for listening. Can't wait to be with you next time, and here's to your breakthrough.